Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4, we've been dealing in the sessions uh, that I have been doing with dangerous times are coming and we commenced with looking at the description of the last days in chapter 3 and how the Bible predicts that perilous times shall come and that dark and black list of all the characteristics that we can expect uh, not only in the world at large in the last days but also uh, in the apostate Christendom that will exist uh, prior to the return of Christ and ultimately will find its full expression in the tribulation period uh, with the harlot religion described in Revelation chapter 17. But tonight, uh, last night we looked at uh, one of the first, one of the duties we have for these last days. We understand we are in the last days, and I believe we are in the last days of the church age, probably the last of the last days. And uh, you say, well, okay, we understand the picture is dark, uh, the hour is late. Uh, What will we do? What should we do? How should we live? And so last night we looked at. Uh, the duties for the the duty for the last days being to be faithful, and tonight I want to give the another duty that we have for the last days, and that is to preach the word, preach the word. Second Timothy chapter four, and we're going to read verses one to eight. We'll pray, and then we will trust the Lord to help us tonight as we expound this passage for you. Second Timothy chapter four, reading from verse one. <clears throat> I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned under fables. But watch thou in all things." Endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Let's pray as we commit this time to the Lord. Lord, we ask for your help now and for your blessing on this time in your word. I pray, Lord, tonight that you would strengthen my voice, uh, Lord, and help it to last the distance for this message. I pray, Lord, that you would minister through me, Lord, that I would not be an obstruction to what you want to accomplish tonight, but that, Lord, I might be your channel and your vessel to be a blessing, and that you put your hand upon us tonight and bless us indeed. And speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2 Timothy, we're dealing with Paul's final letter before he goes home to glory. And now we reach the climax of this letter. and And it contains Paul's final recorded charge to Timothy, his son in the faith. And I find as a preacher, I feel like my pulse quickens every time I read this chapter. And how it stirs your heart if you have that calling. And we want to see that tonight in light of chapter 3, that this is the great duty that we have in these apostate days to proclaim the truth of the Word of God. And Paul has already delivered three charges in his two letters to Timothy, his son in the faith. 
In 1 Timothy 1 verse 18, 1 Timothy 5.21 and 1 Timothy 6.13. And Paul now delivers his fourth and final charge before passing through the gates of death and into eternity. And I want to divide this charge from Paul to Timothy into three sections tonight. So number one, I want you to notice in verse 1 through 4 what I would call the injunction or the command to preach. The injunction or the command to preach. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned under fables. Paul was concerned to impress upon Timothy in light of the coming apostasy that he be a faithful preacher of the word of God. Let's think about this command to Timothy to preach. And I want you to notice several things about this. Firstly, what I would call the mindset for preaching. Verse 1, the mindset for preaching. Paul seeks to impress upon Timothy the reality of the fact that he will one day stand before God and that he has a responsibility. I charge thee, therefore, we are responsible to the scriptures. We are responsible to the scriptures because where you have the word therefore, you need to stop and consider what it is there for. And the word therefore connects what Paul is now saying with what he said previously. So Paul has just spoken in chapter 3 about the inspiration of the word of God and that it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And now he says, on the basis of all that, therefore I charge you to be... um, Uh, to be a preacher of the word of God. Now the word before there means in the presence of or in the sight of and so it's like Timothy, it's like Paul is summoning Timothy into the very throne room of heaven and saying Timothy I'm giving you this charge in the sight of God and in the sight of his son Jesus Christ and he's seeking to impress upon Timothy this awesome responsibility and an awareness of God uh, and, and that he had this duty before God. Someone put it this way, Paul brings before Timothy the great realities of the future world. So we are responsible, this is our mindset, we are responsible to the scriptures, but secondly we are also responsible to the saviour. As I've mentioned, Paul seeks to impress upon Timothy that he is giving him this charge in the sight of God and his son Jesus Christ, the one who was to come, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. We see the imminent return of Christ as judge is central here to the apostles' thinking. It's amazing, isn't it, actually, as you go through the epistles, how often we have woven into the fabric of those epistles these references to the coming of Christ as an exhortation and as an encouragement to do what God is telling us to do. And one writer says this, at this point, Paul did not seem to be so concerned about distinguishing between the time of these judgments as he was concerned about stressing the fact that everyone will will eventually stand before him and give account. That's the purpose here. It's not giving us a systematic timeline of events. Paul is simply seeking to impress upon Timothy the reality of his calling and the reality of what he needed to do for the Lord. And I think that as we think about this, what kind of mindset do we need in this day and age, this apostate hour, 
Well, we need to preach with an awareness of God. Paul is impressing upon Timothy that he has this responsibility to preach the word with that consciousness that he is under the gaze of Almighty God. And that's the kind of preaching and that's the kind of preachers we need in this apostate hour. You say, what kind of preaching do we need? What kind of preachers do we need in an apostate world? We need preachers who preach with the fear of God. Men who are more concerned about what God thinks than what man thinks. Today we have pulpits filled with politicians and people pleasers and in reality they fear the people more than they fear God. No, Paul is saying, Timothy, I want you to preach with this consciousness that you stand, as it were, in the presence of Almighty God. C.H. Spurgeon was a greatly used man of God. We wouldn't agree with every aspect of his theology, but he was a, mightily, a, a, a mighty man of God who was used of God. And in 1883, he said this, I have preached the gospel now these 30 years, and more and often in coming down to this pulpit, I have felt my knees knocked together. Not that I am afraid of any one of my hearers, but I am thinking of that account which I must render to God, whether I speak his word faithfully or not. And I want you to see this command. We often hear this preached to preachers and that's important. But I want you to see that in the light of chapter 3, the therefore connects us back to chapter 3. We're dealing in chapter 3 with the coming apostasy. And this is the burden of my message tonight. We need preachers who are going to be heralds in this apostate hour. Could I just say this? There has been a number of things on our hearts for this weekend. We've been praying for a number of things. We prayed for the salvation of the lost. We prayed for the reviving of God's people. Could I also tell you that this is very much on my heart, and I I believe it's probably on the hearts of others, that maybe God would reach down into a young man's heart on this very night, on this very weekend, and say, I want you in this apostate hour to be a preacher of the gospel, to be a herald of the word of God. Let me tell you, that is the great need of the hour. You say, Pastor, what do we need? We live in these days we can identify as we go through there that terrible description we can see we are in the last days we can see the apostasy that has overtaken so much of the professing Christian world pastor what is the answer to that apostate hour well here we have it we need the we need preachers who will preach the word of God without the fear of man And I want to challenge the young men under the sound of my voice tonight. Maybe you're here and you have all sorts of thoughts about a career. You have all sorts of thoughts about what you want to do in your life. Could I just say, if I was you, I would get down on my knees and beg God to make you a preacher. I'd get down on my knees and say, God, if there's anything that you would have me to do, I am willing. And sure, if God's will eventually is for you to go into some kind of career or some kind of vocation, that's fine. But at least make yourself available to him to use. I tell you, that's what we need. We need some preachers of the word of God in this day. We need some young men of God who will be raised up of God to herald the truth in this dark hour. So we have the mindset for preaching. We have the mandate for preaching. Here we notice that there are a number of commands given in verse 2, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. The mandate for preaching. Look at the technique to be embraced. The technique to be embraced. The word preach there tells us something of this duty. And the word preach here means to herald and to proclaim. In fact, the word was, if you go back and study the historical context of this word, it had to do with a herald who was sent by a ruler, 
maybe by the emperor, to deliver a message from that authority. And the herald was not an ambassador there to negotiate. He was a messenger with a proclamation to be heard and to be heeded. He had no authorization to adjust the message. His job was to come and in a loud voice, perhaps in the town square, proclaim the word of the emperor, to proclaim the word of the authority. And that is the mandate we have. We are to preach the word of God. We are not here to preach our opinions. We're not here to preach our own ideas. We are here to herald the message of God. You know, preaching is still God's method. Preaching is still God's method. And we are living in days today where people want to get away from that method because preaching is offensive. And so we take the pulpit away and have some sort of little lectern thing and we get away from the preaching of the Word of God and we turn the house of God into a place of entertainment and we get the band in there to shake things up a bit. Isn't it amazing today that apparently the key to reaching people is to have a band? Tell me where in the Bible where it says that a band or even any kind of music is the primary vehicle that God has chosen for calling sinners to himself. Actually, the Bible tells us quite clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. What we need today is not more entertainment, not more bands, not more rock and roll in church. What we need are some spirit-filled, scripture-soaked men of God who will stand up in this apostate hour and herald, thus saith the Lord. That's what we need. And so the herald would have to speak in a loud and a clear voice. Now, we don't want a carnal display of angry yelling that originates from the flesh, and I'm sure uh, some of you have maybe seen that before or heard of that. Uh, you know, you don't need to preach like a bear robbed of his favorite, uh, like a, a monkey robbed of his favorite bananas. Um, okay, <clears throat> we understand that. We're not interested in some sort of fleshly display of carnal anger. But let me tell you what we do want to see is some holy zeal in the pulpit. What we do want to see is men who have a passion for the truth. And don't be surprised if there's passion for the truth and zeal for the truth that sometimes the preacher might get a little bit loud. We're not here to make suggestions. We're not here to share opinions. We are here with a message, thus saith the Lord. That's what the world needs to hear today, thus saith the Lord. The technique to be embraced, preach. The theme to be expounded, the word. What word is he referring to? Well, the word that he, that, that, that he spoke about back in verse 16 and 17 of the previous chapter, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, the inspired word, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished under all good works. I can't think of any greater privilege than to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. I can't think of anything more wonderful than to be a herald of the Word of God, the eternal, inspired, infallible, indestructible Word of God. The Bible contains 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New. There are 31,173 verses, 774,746 words and 3,566,480 letters in the entire Bible. 
The longest chapter is Psalm 119 and the shortest and middle is Psalm 117. The longest verse is Esther 8 verse 9 and the shortest is John 11:35. but it's all the precious word of God for the preacher to expound. Could I say this? If we've got so much truth from God, why would you waste time on man's philosophies and man's opinions and feel-good speeches when we have the riches of the word of God to proclaim? Why would you trade the word of God for the empty philosophies and the empty opinions of this sin-cursed world? So we're called to preach the word. What does that mean? Well, to preach the word is to preach the Bible. (laughs) That's kind of very basic, isn't it? But very important. The Bible alone is the preacher's primary textbook. We can learn from the writings of other men, to be sure, but they are not inspired. We hold them uh, underneath uh, the scrutiny of Scripture. To preach the word of God is, of course, to preach the gospel and the great doctrines of the faith. To preach the word of God is to preach the whole counsel of God. That's important today, isn't it? Acts 20 verse 27, For I have not shunned to declare unto you, said Paul, all the counsel of God. That's the kind of preaching ministry you want to be under where you have a preacher who fears God more than man and he's prepared to tell you by the grace of God everything that God said. Everything that's found in the word of God. Do you know what I'm finding? is If you are, by God's grace, endeavouring to be that kind of preacher and preach the whole counsel of God, guess what word people like to use today to smear you? Legalism. Someone wrote to me recently, Hardline, legalistic preaching doesn't achieve anything. Well, what's your definition of legalism? Because I'm against legalism, according to its actual definition. But don't use that as a smear tactic for a man of God. I wrote back and said, is preaching the whole counsel of God legalism? Is it legalism to have a zeal for the truth of God's word? Is it legalism to reprove, rebuke and exhort with all long suffering and doctrine? Is it legalism to preach the whole counsel of God? Is it legalism to, have a, to exhort God's people to a practical walk of holiness? It's not legalism to preach the word of God. Now, this is another one. Some preachers just need to let the Holy Spirit do the work. Now, on the surface, do you see how there's these subtle, you throw these darts at you, You, the preacher, and the implication is that you're trying to force people. You know, if you try and force people to change, listen, if there's one thing I've learned in uh, about 10 years of pastoring to date, I've learned one thing, you can't force people to do anything, even if you wanted to. We understand that the Holy Spirit has to do the work. But what I have noticed is sometimes preachers use that phrase as a cop-out to not preach the whole counsel of God. Well, I just don't really deal with these kinds of confrontational issues that are going around in our society today. I'm just going to let the Holy Spirit do the work. And I ask the question, excuse me, what is the primary instrument that the Holy Spirit uses in the sanctification process? It is the Word of God. That's what the Spirit of God uses to sanctify the believer. Jesus said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Don't say, I'm just going to let the Holy Spirit of God do the work and then use that as an excuse not to declare the whole counsel of God.
And guess what? You're going to find, if you're going to preach the whole counsel of God, you're going to run headlong into some strongholds. You're going to run headlong into the currents of this world. The technique to be Embrace the theme to be expounded, the time to be employed, be instant in season, out of season. This word be instant means to take one stand, to stand by, to be ready. It speaks of constant readiness. It's a military word meaning to stay at one's post. That's what we need today, don't we? Faithfulness. And there are some preachers here tonight. Stay at your post. Stand ready. That's what it means, be instant. A.T. Robertson said it means to stand up to it. (laughs) That's what we need. In season and out of season. That means the word is to be preached in good times and in difficult times. When there's a lot of visible fruit, when there's no visible fruit. The preacher is to be at his post, preaching the word of God and leaving the results in God's hand. Do you know that the 21st century church largely ignores the principle of seasons in the preaching ministry? Because they determine success primarily by numbers. It doesn't take this into account. You have to have numbers, you have to have numerical growth, otherwise you're doing something wrong as a church. And so the focus becomes numbers and then they engineer everything to try and fill the church with numbers. No, 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 our job is to be faithful to the word of God, to preach the word of God. And Jesus said, I will build my church. We'll let the Lord build the church. We are to be at our post and be faithful. Look at number three, the method for preaching. We're dealing with this command to preach, this injunction to preach. The method for preaching. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Here we have the method. Here we have the delivery method of, for the message. And I want you to see that there is a three-pronged approach and what I would call a two-fold accompaniment. Firstly, a three-pronged approach, reprove, rebuke and exhort. The word reprove means to bring to light, it means to convince and to convict. It's translated convict in John 8 verse 9, convince, John 8 46, tell a fault, Matthew 18 15. And that's what the word of God is designed to do, to reprove us, to tell us our faults, to convict us of what we have done wrong. Yes, it is the preacher's job to reprove sin. That sounds very basic, but you can get into a lot of trouble for doing that today. You know, I find most people don't mind, at least most professing Christians, don't mind if you teach the facts of the Word of God. Just don't tell them how that might affect their daily life. Just don't tell them how, just don't join the dots between what you're preaching and what, uh, what change might need to be brought about in their lives. But that's where this aspect of reproving, rebuking takes us beyond just the teaching and exposition of the word. The preacher then must apply the word. And I've always said exposition should lead to application. Application should flow out of exposition. So we don't want to just have all application with no exposition. Otherwise, you have no authority. There's an emptiness there. We need to go to the word of God and study it and draw out the meaning and present it. But then we need to reprove, rebuke and exhort based on what we have studied. The word rebuke means to censure sharply, to warn, to bring a charge. It means, says one commentator, he must reprimand the sinner and not tone down his sin. 
That's what we have happening today. Preachers trying to tone down sin as God sees it. Just be positive. Take Robert Schuller as an example of the judge not philosophy. He said this, I have no right to ever preach a sermon or write an article that would offend the self-respect and violate the self-dignity of a listener or reader. Well, you're not going to find much in the Bible to preach then. Start with the basics of the gospel. All have sinned. That's kind of offensive to our human nature, isn't it? To tell people you are a sinner in need of salvation. (laughs) Reprove, rebuke, exhort. There's the comfort. There's the encouragement side. Yes, we, we need to be reproved and rebuked. And isn't it interesting? Those are the first two on the list. But we also need that encouragement. The word exhort here means to urge, means to encourage. In fact, it's the word parakaleo, which has the idea of one who calls alongside to help. It's the ministry of the Spirit of God who is called the comforter, the, the one who comes alongside, the one who urges us on, the one who encourages us. And what I find when the Word of God is faithfully preached, the needs will be met. And one sermon will be more focused towards reproof or rebuke, but then there'll be other messages where you do get an encouragement. And you get that strengthening and you get that comfort to go on in the work of God. I said to my wife the other day, I preached the message on Joseph and um, his trials and what he went through. And I said, I hope that message was more of a comfort for people today. She said, you really hammered on the sin of bitterness though. And I said, well, okay, I thought I preached a comforting message, but um, I tried. Um, <clears throat> I did try my best. But, um, but God's word has a way of doing that. Threefold approach, a twofold accompaniment. Notice the word with there, with all long suffering and doctrine. The word with indicates that reproof, rebuke, and exhortation are all to be done in connection with these two principles. We have the word long suffering there, means patience and endurance and this is good for the preacher to bear this in mind he needs to do all those things he needs to reprove he needs to rebuke he needs to exhort but he needs to do that with patience patience with the people of God patience through the trials endurance is the other aspect of what the word means enduring there waiting on God being and 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 going on faithfully and then also doctrine we see that the reproof, rebuke and exhortation must be based on sound biblical teaching, sound biblical content. Very important. I've heard some very hot air kind of rebuke preaching that didn't have a lot of Bible in it, wasn't based on a clear exposition of the word and the preacher might have been yelling like bellows the bull but there wasn't a lot of content from the word of God. No, when we're reproving, rebuking, it needs to come out of the word of God as we're exhorting and encouraging, it needs to come out of the word of God so the preacher must also be a teacher. Look now at the motivation for preaching. Verse 3 to 4, the motivation for preaching. For the time will come. See how Paul still has very much in mind the future? In chapter 3, he's dealing with the time that is to come, the last days. We come into chapter 4, he's exhorting Timothy. He's still, this is still very much foremost in his mind, the coming time of apostasy, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables." And so Paul reminds Timothy again of the coming apostasy to motivate him 
to seize the opportunity to proclaim the truth. The word for here connects these verses to the command of verse 1 and 2. The lateness of the hour should motivate the preacher. Time is running out. I hope you've got that message over this weekend. Time is running out for this world. The, the church age is drawing to an end. Now, we, we, it's not for us to ever set a date. Only God knows the time or the hour, and we're never going to set a date for the Lord's return. Don't even listen to someone if they do that. But we can see from what the Word of God says here that we must be in those last days because we can see the fulfillment of these things or the, at least the shaping up of these things around us. And Paul is saying, Timothy, you need to preach because the time is coming when they will not endure sound doctrine. But they're going to heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. It's the lateness of the hour that calls for biblical preaching. And again, this is the burden really of my heart tonight. The lateness of the hour gives us that urgency. This is where we need men of God to surrender to preach God's word. Time is running out for this wicked world. The lateness of the hour makes the task of proclaiming the truth all the more urgent. The time will come. Now, this began to be fulfilled even in the days of the apostles, 1 John 2.18. Read that. The apostasy will continue through the church age, 2 Timothy 3.13. And ultimately, it will culminate in the one world false religion of Revelation 17 and 18 in the tribulation period. Paul says the time's coming where they will not endure. The word has the idea of to put up with, to tolerate sound doctrine. What's sound doctrine? Well, the word sound there means wholesome healthy do you know it's good for you it's bad for my self-esteem to hear that i'm a sinner it's bad for my self-esteem to hear all this preaching from the bible it is good for you to hear the pure word of the living god isn't that the need of the hour the pure unadulterated scriptures the word of god that has that is god breathed that the inspired word of god that is what our world needs and it's sound doctrine, it's good for you, it's good for your spiritual health. How tragic that you would prefer to feed on spiritual junk food. But the time's coming where there's a lack of appetite. I would say we're at that time. Where there's a lack of desire to hear sound doctrine. People would rather have something to tickle their ears. And so Paul warns of this time, this time would come where there would be, let me give you a few thoughts here, number one, a resistance to the truth. A resistance to the truth. They would not endure sound doctrine. I've just mentioned that. Number two, a regard for false teachers. Rather than heeding sound doctrine, they would heap to themselves teachers having itching ears after their own lusts. What is it that drives people to false teachers? Well, let's answer that question. They're driven by their sinful lusts. After their own lusts. You know, there is a certain type of preacher or a certain type of teacher in ministry that will not disturb your lusts. Do you understand that? I think you're tired at the end of the weekend. That's okay. Why is it that people heap to themselves teachers? Well, the Bible tells us what is the driving force behind that. It's after their own lusts. They do not want their sin nature confronted by a genuine man of God who will preach the pure truth of God's word. That's the reality. 
they heap to themselves teachers. Having itching ears, the word heap here means to heap up, to accumulate in piles. They search out not just one teacher, but multiple teachers who will indulge their sinful lusts and make them feel good. These sorts of teachers are in abundant supply. The airwaves are dominated by these kinds of ministries that will just cater to your felt needs and never ruffle your feathers. And if they ever even mention sin, it'll be in very soft terms and in apologetic apologetic terms. But a faithful preacher of the truth is a rarity and not to be taken for granted. A faithful preacher of the truth, and I'm not just... I'm just saying, a faithful preacher of the truth is not to be taken for granted. They're rare today. It's much easier to just go with the flow and just cater things according to what people desire. Do you know, I've noticed that one of the main reasons why some people leave a strong Bible-based, Bible-preaching church it's this, their lusts got disturbed by the word of God. The, 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 the sword of the spirit pierced into something in their lives. The light of the word shined, the light of the word of God was turned on in a dirty closet in their lives. And I, I just need to go to this other church down the road because I'm not getting fed here. That's strange, isn't it, how people use that when you're giving them, by the grace of God, Bible message after Bible message, and they have to go to this church that doesn't really preach the Word of God because they're not getting fed. No, the reason you want to go down there is because you, are, you don't want your lust disturbed. So they're driven by their sinful lusts, and they're driven by carnal appetites. They want something spine-tingling and tantalising to hear. They have itching ears. Tell you what, that appetite's fueled today by the social media world, isn't it? And the digital world. Just tell me something that makes me feel good. Something to, something to soothe my itch to hear, uh, my itch there for change. And just, just something that's going to make me feel good. Jeremiah 5.31, the prophets prophesy falsely. This is what... Jeremiah said of his day, the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests bear rule by their means. Listen to this, and my people love to have it so. Isn't that shocking? The prophets in Jeremiah's day were telling lies and the people loved it. Do you know why? Lies don't change my life. Stories don't change my life, don't convict my life about sin in my life. And I had the same illustration here that Brother Ryan mentioned, so it must, have been, must be of the Lord to mention it twice. But when asked by a newspaper reporter, this is a, he must have said it on more than one occasion, obviously, but when asked by a newspaper reporter in 2003, and this was recorded in the Sydney Morning Herald, about the success of Hillsong, Brian Houston said, we are scratching people where they are itching. Has the man read the Bible? Does he realise he just fulfilled what the Bible prophesied? prophesies about the last days that they will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears he says that's the reason we're successful we're scratching people where they itch and so the time would come when there would be a resistance to truth a regard 
a, a regard for false teachers and then ultimately a rejection of truth. Look at verse 4. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto what? Fables. You say, why would you turn your ears away from the truth to hear fables, myths, stories, falsehoods? Because fables don't require any change to my life. Hearing stories and falsehoods do not bring any conviction about the sin in my life. But the truth, the light of the truth of God's word is going to require some change. And so they refuse the truth. They turn away their ears from the truth. And then they replace the truth. They're turned aside into fables. Now notice there the, the phrase turned, um, 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 that they shall be turned under fables is in the passive voice, meaning that they submit themselves to a destructive process here. So the first step is they turn their ears away from the truth and then they are turned under fables. You know, it's a very dangerous thing to set your sail and allow the winds of apostasy to start blowing you in a certain direction because you lose control of that process. And this is what I've said before. When you see Christians maybe going off into an error in one one doctrine, mark it down, it will not stop there. You go into error in one area of doctrine and it's only a matter of time where you are going to end up in error in multiple points of doctrine because error begets error and you turn your ears away from the truth of the God, word of God in a particular area, error, uh, area sorry, and you are going to find yourself being deceived. Very dangerous. And so we have this injunction to preach. The hour is late, Timothy the time is fast coming when they will not endure sound doctrine and here is the urgency you need to preach the word of God. Could I say it again? The great need of the hour in this apostate generation, this apostate time is for preachers of the word of God who will preach God's word without fear of man. Maybe God would put his hand on your heart tonight as a young man. Maybe there's someone here who needs to surrender to God and say, God, I give you first option of my life. I had this plan to become to pursue this kind of career or pursue this kind of career, but Lord, I'm going to surrender my life to you tonight. And Lord, if it be your will, would you make me a preacher of the word of God? I can't think of anything more wonderful and, one, and, and more uh, a greater privilege than to be a preacher of the word of God. The injunction to preach. Number two, the instruction for ministry, verse 5. The instruction for ministry, but watch thou in all things. Endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. And so Timothy was to live his life in contrast to the apostates just described in verse 3 and 4. See how Paul is doing that? In chapter 3, he describes the apostates, but continue thou. Timothy, I want you to live differently. And we should live, dif- live differently than the world of apostasy out there. And, and then he describes these ones here who turn away their ears from the truth. But He says, but watch thou. Here's the contrast. But watch thou in all things endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. So there are four duties that Timothy, there were four duties that Timothy was to maintain in pastoral ministry. Number one, vigilance. Watch thou in all things, means to be alert, means to be circumspect. And you know, much of a shepherd's duty involves watching over the sheep. 
I don't want the pastor looking at me. Well, I'm not talking about some kind of carnal control and God, God keep us from that. Preachers that get into that mindset where they're going to try and control in a fleshly way every aspect of people's lives. But I'm talking about godly watch care. And, a, and behind that, that watchfulness, a sincere desire to protect you from spiritual dangers. You say, I don't understand why my pastor is so careful about what kind of preachers he allows in the pulpit and why he's so careful about this. Always careful about this and careful about that and being careful about this and careful about that. That's because he cares about your spiritual protection. Careful monitoring and oversight of the flock has nothing to do with dictatorship, being overbearing or micromanaging, and it has everything to do with being a faithful shepherd of God's sheep. After all, the word bishop means overseer, superintendent, and reveals one of the central functions of a pastor. He is to watch over the flock. That brings protection to your life. I don't know about you, but I want to have my family under a man who's going to watch for my soul and for the souls of my children and for my family and pray for me and... and and, uh, and be a, a, a protector. I like what Pastor Dan says, wolf bashing is part of our job description. <laughs> wolf bashing is part of our job description. Well, wouldn't you rather a shepherd that's going to drive the wolf off at the door than let him come into the pulpit? What would you prefer? There are wolves out there. Spiritual wolves who would come into a church like this with a desire to devour. And by the grace of God, we're going to keep our eyes peeled. And if necessary, we'll tell you the door that you came in is the door you're going to go out by. And I don't enjoy that. So see, I knew our pastor was carnal. He loves chasing people away. Let me tell you, it is one of the most horrible things to have to do. But there have been just a couple of times where Pastor Dan and I have had to say, listen, I think you better not come back here. Now, I'm talking about members. If, members, if you're a member of the church, you have to be dealt with in, with the membership of the church. We're talking about people who come in with an agenda, coming in with... Uh, and, and start getting, it's always a warning, isn't it? When someone is coming to the church, they're not a member, but they all of a sudden want to get their hookers into a visitor. Hmm? A visitor comes and they make a beeline and start, infil- start putting their false ideas and their thoughts that are against where we stand. Don't be surprised if the shepherd comes at you with his crook. No, I'm not talking about anything carnal. I'm, I'm talking about a spiritual watch care over the flock. That's the kind of men we need. We're talking to young men again. If God would raise you up, these are the kinds of shepherds we need. Men who are watchful, men who are careful, men who are aware that there are spiritual perils and spiritual dangers and take seriously. Watch thou in how many things? In all things. Number two, endurance, endure afflictions. You want to be in the ministry? Get ready for some hardship. Paul had already exhorted Timothy to endure the afflictions of the gospel, chapter 1, verse 8, and to endure hardness, chapter 2, verse 3, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Do you know there are battles behind the scenes for a weekend like this to be carried? Sometimes you feel the ferocity of the battle and the buffetings of the devil. But that's part of the minister's duty, to endure afflictions 
to take the hardness that comes with the gospel ministry. Endurance. Evangelism, do the work of an evangelist. Notice that Paul doesn't say you are an evangelist, Timothy. Timothy was in pastoral ministry, but he says, I want you to do the work of an evangelist. What's the work of an evangelist? Well, the the word evangelist means a proclaimer of good news. In fact, the root word here is gospel. By the way, I find that strange when you have an evangelist come to church who doesn't want to go out door knocking with the church. If you're an evangelist, you're supposed to be about the gospel. No, I'm serious. We had an evangelist come here once and he preached for the men's prayer breakfast and then vamoosed before we went door knocking. Now, maybe he had things to do, but it's just a strange thing. Don't try and think about who that was, okay? Um, I'm supposed to. It's a long time ago. So the evangelist's primary role is to preach the gospel. Note the example of Philip the evangelist. He's the only man we have who's specifically called an evangelist in the New Testament in Acts 8.5 and he was all about gospel preaching. Now, of course, we know from Ephesians chapter 4 that he's also the evangelist is also given to the church. So certainly the edification of the saints is a function of the evangelist as well, not denying that. But Paul says, not, he doesn't say, Timothy, you are to be an evangelist because we know from the list there in Ephesians 4.11 that an evangelist is a separate uh, calling to the pastor, but he is to do the work of an evangelist. That means that a pastor needs to be a soul winner. And this is a constant challenge to me and it's a constant help. I think, do the work of an evangelist because there are so many different duties and so many different responsibilities. It is so easy to just put evangelism to one side because there's so much to do. So many needs. And there have been times on a Saturday morning where I've got up Saturday morning, felt weary, thought I've got so much to do, maybe I'm running behind for the week with certain things and there's pressures and I think, no, by the grace of God, I'm going to, by faith, get in the car and drive in and be a part of the soul winning team. This is part of what I need to be doing. Evangelism. Do the work of an evangelist. Having a heart that's warm with love for souls. How we need that. Pastors who are evangelists. Pastors who have a heart for souls and a a heart to get the word of God out and the gospel out and to get the gospel tracts out and to sow the seed of the word of God. That is so important. Then also diligence. We have these instructions for ministry here. Diligence. Make full proof of thy ministry. Now, the phrase here, make full proof, means to fully perform. It means to carry it out to its end, to fulfill. So Timothy was to fully perform the ministry that God had called him to. To carry it out to the full, to excel in what God had called him to do. Make full proof of thy ministry. Fully perform it, Timothy. Carry it out. And so... There's no place for laziness and sloppiness in the ministry, is there? There's no highest vocation, no higher vocation on earth. So we have the injunction to preach. We have some instruction for ministry. Notice number three now, the inspiration for ministry. The inspiration for ministry, for I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. 
Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Paul now gives a word of testimony to inspire Timothy to faithfulness in the ministry. And I want you to notice the tremendous victory note in these words. Remember, Paul is, is literally writing his last words, his final words, before he passes on into glory. And he speaks about several things. He speaks firstly about his present. He speaks then about his past and then about his future. Note firstly his present, verse 6. I am now ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand. The word offered here means to be poured out like a libation or a drink offering. Paul viewed his impending martyrdom here as a as an act of sacred service to God. That was the attitude of his entire life. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 1.21, he was ready to be offered. The time of his departure was at hand. He then talks about his past. Verse 7, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. And he uses three figures to summarize his life's ministry. The first figure, the first picture is that of a Greek wrestler. I have fought a good fight. The figure here is not drawn from the battlefield but from the Greek games and it's a picture of an athlete struggling and contending for the prize. And Paul had wrestled and fought all his life for the gospel contending with sin and with Satan. He says, I have fought a good fight. Do you know there is such a thing as a good fight? There is a fight that you need to be involved with. Now there are fleshly fights There are carnal fights that as Christians we want to have nothing to do with, but we're talking about the good fight, which is the fight for the truth, the fight that all Christians are commanded to be a part of. Jude 1 verse 3, we are to earnestly contend for the faith, and Paul was a fighter for the truth. Then a Greek runner, I have finished my course. The figure here is that of a foot race. Paul had run his race well, fulfilling the mandate of Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Notice he had run my course. He had had fulfilled the specific track that God had ordained for him to run. Run your race well for the Lord. Find out what God wants you to do and run the course that God has set for you. By the grace of God, cross over the finish line, faithful to the Lord. Paul knew that by the grace of God, he had fought in the battles. He'd fought a good fight. He had finished the course that God had given him to run. The third figure was that of a Roman soldier. I have kept the faith. The picture here is of a Roman soldier standing guard. The word kept there means to keep by guarding. What a Paul guarded, the faith. Not a faith or not his faith subjectively, but the faith, speaking of that body of revealed truth. Paul had been a guardian of the truth and a defender of the faith against the attacks of the false teachers. Then he talks about his future. And since it's Prophecy Weekend, I want you to see this is our future also at least certain aspects of it. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. His future. Notice firstly, the gift, the reward. Paul was anticipating a crown of righteousness. Now this word crown 
is the Stephanus crown. It was the victor's crown. It was a laurel wreath that was made out of oak leaves or ivy uh, given to, and given to a winner in the games. And Paul was anticipating rewards for faithful service. Isn't that amazing that God would not only save us but also want to reward us for serving him? We don't even deserve to be saved. But isn't it an amazing thing that God wants to also reward us? And there are five crowns mentioned in the New Testament. And I hope in your Christian life you're striving to win those crowns. There's the incorruptible crown for living a disciplined, faithful Christian life, 1 Corinthians 9.25. There's the crown of rejoicing for successful soul winning in 1 Thessalonians 2.19-20. There's the crown of righteousness for loving Christ's appearing, 2 Timothy 4.7-8. There's the crown of life for enduring temptation, James 1.12, and the the crown of glory for faithful pastors, 1 Peter 5.1-4. I want that crown. Pray God will help me to win that crown. There's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. Notice this, and not to me only, but unto all them which, what? All them also that love his appearing. That tells me that crown is not just for the Apostle Paul. This crown is available to you. And how do you qualify for this crown? You need to love his appearing. Who's appearing? The appearing of the great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Are you a lover of the second coming? Are you a lover of this truth, of the appearing of our Saviour, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ? So we have the gift, we have the guarantee. It's not to me only. This reward was not exclusively for the Apostle Paul, but it's available to all believers. The qualification is for those who would love his appearing hopefully this weekend has stirred in you a fresher love for his appearing I don't know about you but even I find even myself sometimes you can just get so busy in life you can just have your head down and doing this and doing that and you can start living going day after day with very little thought at all about the fact Christ could appear that Christ could come and may God help us to keep that truth always before us to love his appearing and I was thinking about this picture of his appearing what a beautiful picture Think about that. The Lord Jesus Christ, the one we have never yet seen with our eyes, he's going to appear in the sky. He's going to come in the air and he's going to call us back. He's going to call us out of this wicked world and and call us up into his presence. What a beautiful picture. There's different words that describe the rapture. But I love this picture here of his appearing. Our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, the one who loved us, the one who died for us, the one who washed us from our sins in his own blood. He's going to appear in the sky and call us home. Aren't you looking forward to that? 1 Corinthians 15, 51-52 says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-18, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. We are not looking tonight for the appearance of the Antichrist. We are looking for the appearing of the great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, one of the most wicked things about these alternative rapture views, whether you, whatever you say, they divert the attention of the believer from looking and waiting for the coming of Jesus Christ to looking and waiting for the coming of the Antichrist. And that is a wicked thing to do. 
And you can say all you like, well, no, I'm still waiting for Jesus Christ. Yes, but you are saying, there are actually people out there that say this. They say that Jesus Christ will not come until the Antichrist comes first. I don't care what you say. You have diverted the attention of the believer from waiting for Jesus Christ to looking for the Antichrist. You see, belief affects behavior. And it's going to adjust your perspective. If you honestly think you're going to go through the tribulation and you're going to face the Antichrist, then don't be surprised if eventually that affects your life where you start building a bunker and buying yourself weapons and stockpiling resources. And we laugh, but there are literally Christians out there doing that because they've lost the blessed hope of his appearing. No, we are waiting for the appearing of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, in the sky. And you need to be a lover of his appearing if you're going to qualify for the crown. So let's just remember tonight, we're not looking for the hour of temptation, but for the moment of translation. We're not looking for preservation through, but deliverance from. We're not going to be caught in the tribulation. We're going to be caught up before the tribulation. We're not going to be overtaken. We're going to overcome. We're not looking for signs, we're listening for sounds. We're not anticipating the seals, we're awaiting the Saviour. We're not looking for the sounding of the trumpets, we're listening for the trumpet sound. We're not looking for the vials, we're listening for the voice of the archangel. We're not watching for judgment, we're waiting for Jesus. We're not looking for the great tribulation, but the great God and Saviour. We're not looking for Jacob's trouble, we're looking for Jesus' triumph. We're not looking for the man of sin, we're looking for the Son of Man. We're not looking for the deceiver, but for the deliverer. We're not looking for the Antichrist, but for the appearing. We're not looking for the little horn, but for the Lord of glory. We're not looking for the beast, but for the blessed hope and our bridegroom. We're not looking for the son of perdition, but for the son of God. We're not looking for that wicked, but for the living word. We're not looking for wrath, we're looking for rapture. We're not looking for the tribulation, but for the translation. We're not going through, we're going up. We're not looking for the Antichrist, we're looking looking for Jesus Christ. And so we need preachers in this apostate hour. Will you surrender to that call? Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. I hope that preachers under the sound of my voice have been encouraged by this message tonight, but let me just say that the primary burden, I was praying about this, Lord, what, what, is, what, what, is, what is your heart for this message? The primary burden on my heart tonight was for young men sitting all across our auditorium here. And I feel like the Lord impressed on my heart that this was the challenge to bring before you tonight, especially that you would surrender to be a preacher of the Word of God. The hour is late. Time is running out. We need preachers. Just think of the impact in this apostate hour if we had even one, two, three men of God raised up from this very room and the impact that could have with the faithful, the faithful declaration of the word of God. Maybe you're here tonight and maybe God would even use this message to, to seal it in your heart, I'm calling you. God can do that. I don't, I don't know how to explain it, but God can do that. He did it to me as a seven-year-old in this very church where I stepped forward under the preaching of a very powerful message and it came in an invitation and I knew in my heart from that point forward God had called me to preach and maybe that's you tonight. Or maybe you might say, I'm not 100% sure yet if God's calling me to preach but tonight I'm going to make myself available. How the world needs the precious word of God. Don't waste your life 
chasing some dream dished up by the world. And it might be that God has a different sphere of service for you. I'm not saying that's a sin if that's what God calls you to. But would you at least give God the opportunity and say, God, here am I, send me. It's interesting, isn't it, how he said, as I didn't say, here am I, maybe I'll go. No, there's a, there's a plea there, here am I, Lord, send me. Would you send me, Lord? It's more than just even a, a passive willingness. It's a passion. Lord, would you, would you take me? Would you use me? I want you to take me, Lord. I want you to use me. So here's what I'm going to do tonight. I'm going to ask, if God has touched your heart tonight, particularly I'm speaking to the young men of, who are under the sound of my voice, if God has touched your heart, either one, you feel he's called you to preach, or number two, you're willing for God to take you and use you if it's his will. I'm just going to ask you to quietly stand right now in God's presence as a commitment to that, that by the grace of God, if God would call you, amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen. Anyone else? Either God is calling you to preach or at the very least you're saying, God, I'm willing if you would take me and if you would use me. Now, I hope you don't mind me doing this, but I'm going to ask everyone else to open their eyes and look at who's standing so you can pray for these young men doesn't necessarily mean that every single one of them will become preachers but at least they're making themselves available to God let's pray for them now shall we Lord we thank you for these sincere hearted men and their response tonight and Lord we would not want to try and pressurize any of them into the ministry against your divine will for their lives but Lord we do thank you tonight for their willingness to make themselves available to you oh Lord it's been the burden of our hearts that you might call someone to preach this weekend you raise up men of God for the harvest field, men of God in this apostate hour. So Lord, put your hand mightily upon these men. Thank you for their willingness to stand and, and to make themselves available for you, for you to use. And I do pray you would take them. Lord, even if it pleased you, that you would take all of them and use them to be preachers of your word. So we commit them to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. You may be seated. Father, thank you. For your word tonight, we pray that you'd seal these lessons to our hearts. For those of us who are already in the ministry, may our hearts be affirmed again, affirmed afresh, Lord, that we would be faithful preachers of the word of God. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.